This is the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore. It's a pleasure to welcome back a frequent guest on the program, Mr. Peter Betts. How you doing, Peter? I'm fine, Bob. It's great to see you again. It is. Peter Betts is a retired professor at Fulton Montgomery Community College, retired to Fulton County historian, and he writes a bi-weekly column about local history for the Leader Herald newspaper. One of your more recent columns had to do with a story from the Revolutionary War and the Battle of Oriskany and General Nicholas Herkimer. Could you tell us about that? Well, yes, I'd be glad to, Bob. Uh, <clears throat> this is a, a thing that we can't really know exactly what happened, but uh, there are various accounts, and uh, I've drawn together in one article here the, the most logical and, and probable a scenario of what happened to Herkimer. Uh, delving into the history of early American uh, medicine, which we need to speak of first, mm-hmm. uh, one observes that very few advances were made throughout the 18th century, and those that were seldom reached frontier doctors. I mean, in those days, Bob, there was no American Medical Society and no, uh, right. no monthly journal coming into your mailbox. Mm-hmm. Uh, people became doctors in one of three ways, by graduating from a recognized European medical school, by apprenticing under a practicing doctor, or by simply hanging out a sign with the word doctor on it. <laughs> uh, the first method was preferable but rare. Uh, for example, in 1820, only one of Boston's ten physicians held a medical degree from a European college. Uh, and there were only 12 doctors there, by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, or, I'm sorry, 10. Uh, apprenticing was the most common pathway, but that was common in almost all professions in America at that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but how well it worked depended really on how bright the student was and how skilled the teacher was. The third method, hanging out a shingle and peddling a few homemade cure-alls, was all too common. <laughs> And uh, such practitioners were usually the quacks uh, of the business. Mm -hmm. But believe it or not, even Sir William Johnson trusted a highly controversial doctor named Raymond Magra. Uh, Former Johnson Hall Superintendent Wanda Birch uh, described Magra uh, as saying that he was described as an annoying quack by some and as a brilliant physician by others. General Gage, in an April 23, 1768 letter to Johnson, gave Johnson his opinion. He said, Magra is gone to Canada, and I wish he had left the continent entirely. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Another gentleman uh, in New York, Benjamin Roberts, wrote Johnson uh, about Magra in uh, February of 1770. He advised him that... uh, all their New York friends wished that Johnson would find another doctor because they considered Magra, and I quote, stupid and doting. Yeah. Uh, yet earlier, during the spring of 1766, Johnson wrote of some success with Magra's potions, as he called them, for treating a violent disorder of the bowels. He was always talking about having a disorder of the bowels, which I guess today we'd call dysentery. I don't know. Well. Anyhow. While we can't assess the skills of Revolutionary War-era Mohawk Valley doctors, 
We do know who some of them were. Dr. Moses Younglove and uh, Dr. John Jost Petri are best documented, but they're mainly documented for their roles as Tryon County uh, Committee of Safety members, not doctors. Mm -hmm. And when uh, a man named Jacob Stell, for example, uh, was shot with a musket ball in the right shoulder at the Battle of Stone Arabia, it was a German doctor named Vaugh, V-A-U-G-H, who practiced almost exclusively among the Palatine Germans that removed the ball. According to a testimony that Snell himself wrote in his pension paper many, many decades later, uh, Vaugh removed the ball, quote, with great difficulty. Mm. In other words, it must have hurt. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Yet Vaugh succeeded, and Snell enjoyed a long life of public service, dying in 1838. Early 19th century Dr. Samuel Voorhees of Glen, and later Amsterdam, studied under his father-in-law, Dr. Stephen Reynolds. This was the apprenticeship method, of course. Mm -hmm. And uh, when some early 19th century doctors formed the Montgomery County Medical Society in 1808, Voorhees was the very first doctor they examined and licensed to practice medicine. Today... Accurate examples of what common 18th century medical treatments did either for or to the patient is scarce. Only when someone of importance became its victim has history taken much note of it. And unfortunately, General Herkimer wasn't as lucky as Jacob Snell. Mm -hmm. The story of Herkimer's demise is generally known, that he was wounded in the leg at the Battle of Oriskany, that the leg was amputated several days later at his home, and that he died later that day. No one, believe it or not, even noted down which leg it was. Hmm. Uh, Durant's 19th century history of Oneida County includes a letter written to Dr. Jonathan Potts, and Potts was the director of American uh, Army Hospitals of the Northern Department. And this letter was written to him by a man named Robert Johnson, presumably a doctor-slash-surgeon, dated August 17, 1777. Extracted, it states, Yesterday morning I amputated General Harkimer's leg, there not being left the prospect of recovery without it. But alas, the patriot hero died in the evening, the cause of his death God only knows. Well, duh. I see. You you have your leg amputated back in those days. There's a general pretty good idea what he died from, right? Mm -hmm. Anyhow, about three hours before his departure, he complained of pain. I gave him 30 drops of laudanum liquid and went to dress Mr. Petrie. I left him in as good a way as I could with Dr. Hastings to take care of him. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, this Dr. Petri is one of the people I, um, I mentioned earlier, John Petri, who was also a doctor. And he was in the battle. Uh, both he and Younglove were in the battle, too. And uh, he was wounded, so he was not, you know, up and around. Uh, no doubt Petri and Younglove, who both knew Herkimer well, would have attended him if they could have. But Petri was laid up with his own wound after the Battle of Oriskany. And Young Love was temporarily a British prisoner. Mm. Other versions of General Herkimer's amputation story exist. 19th century historian William L. Stone quoted a statement by Colonel John Roof. 
in in possession of the author, he said at that time. Now, you might ask, who was Colonel John Roof? Mm-hmm. Uh, Roof was a major trader, and he had buildings just outside Fort uh, Stanwix uh, at the time of the, the siege and, and uh, when they uh, the British surrounded the fort there. And his buildings were ordered burned because they were in the way, and the Patriots uh, shooting at the Indians and the, the British couldn't shoot around them. So uh, Roof had suffered a considerable loss, and he had come back down the valley. He ended up settling in uh, uh, what is now Kanjahari. And if you go down there around where that single uh, uh, traffic light is there, there's a big uh, marker to to Roof Mm. and his business. Anyway, Roof related, Herkimer's leg was, and I quote, shattered five or six inches below the knee and was amputated by a young French surgeon in the army of General Arnold, contrary to the advice of the general's own uh, medical advisor, Dr. Petri. Mm. But the operation was unskillfully performed, and it was found impossible to staunch the blood. The blood continued to flow as there was no physician in attendance. So says Roof, and uh, Roof uh, states that he was present, and he very li- very likely was. He'd just gotten chased out of Oriskany and had all of his uh, uh, buildings burned up there. Mm-hmm. And it would have been a logical place for him to go, because they were constant business uh, partners anyway. Uh, there are also questions regarding which day Herkimer died. Arnold informed Colonel Gansevoort in a letter dated August 21st, and he said, General Herkimer died yesterday. Well, this Dr. Robert Johnson's letter to uh, 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 Dr. Potts was dated on the 16th. And another question, of course, comes, Johnson is hardly the name of a French surgeon. Hmm. You know? Yes. So things really just don't add up. And then finally, another question would be, who was Dr. Hastings? <laughs> you know? Uh, so, you know, you, you just have conflicts here. Uh, one also wonders whether Dr. Petri, from his own sickbed, was in any position to oppose Herkimer's surgery. Finally, how was the amputation bungled, and what does it matter since most colonial amputations brought on death anyway? The often conflicting accounts regarding Herkimer's surgery simply don't provide enough facts to determine whether any 18th century surgeon could have saved him. Hmm. Due to the era's primitive surgery, it appears that poor General Herkimer just simply didn't have a leg to stand on. Oh, dear. Now, also part of the story, as I understand it, was that when he was wounded, he continued to direct the uh, his troops. Uh, was that delay the, maybe a reason he passed away or died in the operation? Well, he could hardly have, you know, just walked off the battle scene to begin with, and that went on all afternoon. Now, he supposedly was uh, near the head of his troops riding a horse and was actually shot when he was still on the horse in the very beginning. So he did sustain one of the earlier wounds. And uh, But he could not have gone anywhere other than the fact that uh, they, they he did direct everybody to come up on this eminence, which was a, a position they could defend, and uh, supposedly sat under a tree and directed the battle from there. Uh, uh, you know, with the uh, wound in his leg. In fact, there's a painting 
called The Battle of Oriskany by a man named Frederick Jan. Mm -hmm. Frederick Jan was a skilled artist who practiced in the late 19th and early 20th century, and he specialized in depicting scenes of uh, Revolutionary War battles and activities. In fact, he's the one that uh, did the painting of Washington at Valley Forge, which is probably his best-known work. Well, Peter, I think we'll need to move on to the next story. We've been talking about the death of General Nicholas Herkimer uh, following the Battle of uh, Oriskany uh, in the American Revolution. We're talking with uh, Peter Betts. Back in uh, just a moment, you're listening to the Historian's Podcast. We welcome your contributions uh, to our 2017 Historian Podcast Drive. Uh, Go to this uh, website, GoFundMe.com forward slash Historians 2017, and uh, it's easy to make a contribution. If you'd rather contribute by mail, you can send a check to me, Bob Cudmore, at uh, Bob Cudmore 125 Horstman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. Thank you very much. Peter Betts is uh, with us. He writes uh, history columns for the Leader Herald uh, newspaper in Fulton County. Uh, But he has a story from, I believe, Schoharie right now about a man named George Warner who buried all his books in a swamp, Peter uh, told me. What's the scoop on this man here? Well, they buried almost all of them. I, I entitled this article, George Warner, the Vengeful Historian. Uh, on October 24, 1971, a Cobleskill antique dealer and Schoharie County historian, Dave Niskern, addressed the Fulton County Historical Society. And the Leader Herald reported, he also displayed a book entitled Military Records of Schoharie County Veterans found buried on a farm and reclaimed by bookbinding. The book Niskern brought was written by 19th century Schoharie County resident George Warner, who might well be nicknamed the Vengeful Historian. Published in 1891, the book's full title was Military Records of Schoharie County Veterans of Four Wars. Today, because of what Warner did with his unsold copies, An original edition of this book is one of our scarcest regional history books, prized by both rare book uh, collectors and area historians. Warner was a young Civil War veteran when he he conceived the idea of publishing a book chronicling the lives of every Schoharie County veteran who had served in what were then the four wars America had been involved in, the Revolution, the War of 1812, the Mexican, and the Civil Wars. This information, Warner believed, was historically important, and of course he was right. He would gather it, publish it, and in his mind, all his patriotic Schoharie County neighbors, many of whose family names would appear, would gratefully buy it. Warner's task would prove very difficult. Few sources of information beyond state and federal pension records existed then, but somehow George slowly gathered it together over more than 20 years. It would have taken him a great deal of correspondence to do this. Mm -hmm. Uh, For a person of limited education, Warner's book was very well conceived. Each section gave a brief history of the conflict itself, the prominent battles, 
and then it followed by the factual data on local soldiers, their military rank, wartime engagements, plus whatever additional information Warner could glean about them. While the book wasn't error-free and the content was limited to soldiers of only one county, it was a very scholarly and advanced reference work by 19th century standards. Mm. It remains today a helpful source for local and military historians and genealogists. That is, if they can find it. Hmm. And why finding it remains so difficult is what our real story is all about. But first, who was George Warner? Mm -hmm. His own entry on page 289 reads, George H. Warner, Corporal, great-grandson of 1776, referring to his Revolutionary uh, War ancestors. Uh, Warner enlisted in August 1862, recording himself as a farmer aged 24. His service was difficult. Almost immediately, he contracted camp fever and couldn't join his regiment until December. He then contracted severe diarrhea, recording that he was treated with cheese and blackberry root tea. I recommend that to you, okay. uh, at least the cheese part of it. Mm -hmm. uh, he recovered only to be seriously wounded at Gettysburg on the 1st of July, 1863. From this, he earned a disability discharge. Whatever his disability was, it didn't keep him from going back to Schoharie and farming and spending the next 27 years compiling his book. In those days, books were frequently sold by subscription. That is, the author or an author's agent would canvas an area door-to-door, -door, pre selling a proposed book, and accepting down payments for people who agreed to buy the finished work. Mm -hmm. This system guaranteed a certain number of sales before publication, which helped finance the printing. The system worked fine unless people who initially ordered the book backed out later on. Mm. Warner completed his book in 1890 and sent it away to be printed. It was printed in Albany by Weed and Parsons, which was a very high-class printer in those days. Mm -hmm. uh, just how many copies he ordered or what he charged is not known today. Warner must have looked upon his patriotic endeavor with great pride in the spring day of 1891 when his delivery of books came. And finally, he could deliver his masterpiece to what he anticipated would be a grateful public. Plus, there were all those subscribers from whom to collect the balance owed him. Fame and gratitude, George must have theorized, would be his at last. Hmm. Well, we've all been there, haven't we? Uh, unfortunately, Warner's theory and reality didn't jibe. Hmm. Not only did most Schoharie County citizens greet Warner's book with apparent apathy, but many of his previous subscribers now reneged on paying the balance they owed him. <laughs> When very few copies were sold, Warner, disappointed, disgusted, and angry, decided to wreak vengeance on his ungrateful public. The November 29, 1904, Richfield Springs Mercury relates the story. Sometime since, Albert Warner of Otigo sold Frank Truax, the farm formerly owned by the late George Warner. Since buying the farm, Mr. Truex has dug up about $1,000 worth of books on the place. 
The nearby, you never thought of doing this with any of your books, did you? I, well, I have, Peter. I mean, <laughs> I mean, my, especially my very first book, You Can't Go Wrong, I think I had 5,000 printed. That was a, I mean, a ridiculous number, and uh, I still have some of them. I'm right. now selling them for a dollar, but that's another story. Right. The nearby Jefferson Courier newspaper also reported Mr. Warner, who was a Civil War veteran and a man of some literary ability, published a book titled Scary County Veterans of Four Wars. He was a very eccentric man, and his book, not finding as ready a sale as he thought it should, he buried all the unsold books in a swamp on his farm about six years ago. Hmm. Mr. Truax has found this literary cemetery and now has the soiled volumes drying in his house. Hmm. While burying his life's work in a soggy swamp, Vengeful, vengeful Warner must have loudly cursed his Schoharie County neighbors. There's no doubt contemporary newspaper accounts are accurate because these half-petrified swamp relics do exist. Mm -hmm. The November 29, 1939 St. Johnsville Enterprise, for example, reported that local historian Milo Nellis presented the Margaret Rainey Library with two copies of Warner's book, one unblemished and the other rescued from the swamp by Truex. Last I knew, the swamped copy was still on display in one of the Margaret Rainey's basement uh, cabinets. Well, hmm? I think that uh, George Warner found a way to get fame posthumously. I mean, he made such a production of finding one of his books that it, it added to the value of it. People are going out of their way to, well, let's see if we can save this one copy. So we're talking about him and maybe somebody else who maybe sold a lot of books was passed from historic uh, review. Well, Bob, I do, I do know where there's a swamp. <laughs> What's that? I do know where there's a swamp. Oh, I see. Okay. <laughs> well... In fact, near most radio stations, or a, used to be in the old AM radio station days, or one of the ones I worked at over the years, was built near a swamp. I could have just buried them there. Right. Warner's book is reprinted now, I might mention that, uh, so the data is available. But the prize remains a clean, unburied copy of the original. Ah. It, is, it, is, uh, it is, has bigger type than the reprint. And besides, it does not smell like a swamp. <laughs> well, I'm amazed that they can actually retrieve or, or make good those copies that are, were buried in the swamp. All right. George Warner, who buried his books in a swamp. We're talking with Peter Betts, historian from Fulton County Way. He writes for the Leader Herald newspaper with regular history columns. And uh, you have another uh, tale to tell us uh, today, uh, one more tale, I believe, about an early baseball game or games. Well, uh, first let me ask, how are we doing on time? We have about uh, five and a half minutes left. Okay, that'll be, that'll, that'll be good. Uh, it's, yes, this is about uh, baseball in, in uh, Gloversville and uh, something that happened. Uh, today, of course, you know, and I know, and everyone knows, if you have enough television, cable, TV, TV channels, mm -hmm. you can probably dial up a live professional baseball game any day of the week. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't always so, of course. In the early 20th century, even though Sunday ball games were already being played almost everywhere, certain stiff-necked, influential Gloversville citizens opposed it. Mm -hmm. On August 17, 1931, 
the Amsterdam Recorder sports editor, looking backward, wrote, 30 years ago today, members of the Creelers and Walsa baseball teams were arrested for playing a Sunday game in Fulton County. Words. This was true. In 1901, a Gloversville Daily Leader editor, perhaps himself a disgruntled baseball fan, reprinted this comment from the Amsterdam Sentinel. The men opposing Sunday baseball at Gloversville are men of influence in that city, and it may be put down as fact that they will stop the game if such a thing is possible, and we think it is. (laughs) They were a self-appointed conservative community morals group identified in accounts only as, quote, the Law and Order Committee, Hmm. which included the mayor, of course. Backed by local religious leaders, they were quite influential in that town for quite a while. In fact, uh, about 30 years later, they went through the same thing again about showing movies on Sunday. Mm -hmm. Uh, In a humorous attempt to circumvent directly publicizing this banned baseball game at Gloversville, the leader on August 3rd, 1901, announced an impending, quote, 18-handed golf game. <laughs> it observed... <laughs> Wait a minute, 18-handed golf game? Yes. Okay. It, it observed, in other words, nine players times two. It observed the Amsterdam boys are great putters, and the Gloversvilles are not slow in addressing the ball. This new-style golf game is not unlike old-fashioned baseball. Hint, hint. <laughs> okay. Uh, on, on Saturday, August 4th, 1901, the Anti-Sunday Law and Order Committee met and decided to stop the Sunday game, and warrants were placed in the hands of Sheriff Getman. That official went to the park, arriving during the second inning on Sunday. The crowd was aware of the impending arrest proceedings, and commenced to gather around the officers and committee members and demanded that the law and order men be ejected from the grounds. Someone struck Deputy Sheriff Lossell. The latter retaliated with his big cane, and then the excitement commenced. And I quote, A hooting, howling mob left their seats and surged around the officers. The sheriff drew his revolver, and with a weapon in one hand, and the warrants and handcuffs in the other. There must have been quite a bunch of stuff in his <laughs> no. he avoided. He managed to avoid severe personal injury. One of the members of the committee was struck in the face with a piece of sod. Oh, dear. The sheriff made three or four attempts to get to the diamond to arrest the players, but the crowd prevented him. After the game, the players, quote, climbed the fence and went home in a different direction than that taken by the sheriff. (laughs) Before they left, two derby hats full of money collected by grateful fans was distributed among them. The matter was finally settled on August 23rd when it was announced, members of the Creelers and Walsha baseball teams will not play again on Sunday in Gloversville. Members of the Law and Order Committee informed the players that if they pleaded guilty, the committee would ask that the sentence be suspended. <laughs> a future visit to Gloversville on Sunday will result in fines being imposed. It was not until the early 1920s that Sunday baseball was finally permitted in Gloversville, uh, as it already was everywhere else. <laughs> 
And I can explain maybe why the Creelers wanted to play on Sunday. I don't know about Washa, but uh, Creelers, I recall from the lore of the carpet industry in Amsterdam, they were people that threaded the looms, and they probably worked six days a week. They weren't available to play except on Sunday. Right, right. That's a very good point. How are we doing? We're, we're almost out of time, Peter. Okay. We just say a, a few words or two, and, and we'll be done. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I have another little thing about an empire, an umpire they hated, but maybe we'll just no, save that. I don't think we have time for the umpire, Peter. Okay. But uh, well, we'll have you back again. Always a pleasure to, to talk with you, and uh, you have a good day. Thank you. The same to you, Bob. Peter Betts is a columnist for the Leader Herald newspaper. You can read his history uh, columns uh, every other week. You've been listening to the Historian's Podcast. This is Bob Cudmore. 